0: You are listening to the Small Eager Hunting Podcast. The podcast dedicated to just anything and everything that is the white-tailed deer. You know me. I'm Ty Miller, your host, founder, and the voice of SmallEagerHunting.com. You are the ones that made this turn from a blog to a website to a YouTube channel to everything that it is. So hopefully you find this new venture, this new consistent delivery of information via the podcast, useful. But less chatting on the intro, more chatting on the topic. Let's get this episode started. Let's talk white sales. Okay. We are off.
1: All right. Welcome to episode three of the Smaller Grounding Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host. I am Ty Miller owner and operator and uh, originator of Smollaker Hunting. I wanted to start this episode just, I know, real quick. I seem to do this incessantly, but you guys don't understand. I was just talking to a gentleman the other day about, you know, where'd you get the idea for Smollaker Hunting and uh, where do you think it's going? And, you know, I I, I replied, well, it started as a blog, as I've shared on numerous stories um, with people. And uh, most recently on the Habitat podcast, I was asked, you know, where did it come from? But uh, it started as a blog, and it grew into a website, and then a Facebook page, and then a YouTube channel, and then just everything, and uh, I owe it all to just the people like you who are wasting the minutes with me, and uh, find what I have to say at least entertaining enough to uh, listen to, even if you disagree, maybe you do it to just get, uh, to make fun of me, maybe you learn from it, hopefully that's what it is, but I've just always kind of enjoyed Sharing mine and Pops' experiences with, with the hunting culture and uh, the community out there. And hopefully, you know, when I make a mistake, you don't have to make that same mistake. When I see success in something, you then can garner experience from that as well and learn from it and, and just really see that hard work pays off, that, you know, you're not the only one out there grinding, you're not the only just average real-world hunter As uh, my buddy Don Higgins and all those guys at Real World Wildlife Products say, you know, we're just real hunters. We're real world. And uh, that's that's basically who I am. You know, we're just hardworking hunters that are bit by this white tail bug and uh that's what spawned this whole podcast thing so this is the newest venture in smaller hunting you can i do post uh videos up on youtube they really start kind of hitting stride in, in in late spring typically although i'm running behind and i've kind of shared a little bit of hints as to why that is it's not that i'm not producing content it's that a lot of my content uh producing right now is geared towards something that i'm going to release later this year uh, for a lot of you, um, can choose to partake in that, and, and more to, more on that to come. But uh, the podcast is the, is the newest venture that I have decided to uh, dedicate uh, resources to, and and make sure that I make happen. Right now, a lot of the episodes are going to be just me talking. However, I, I am going to reach out to a few of my local uh, hunting gurus, as I call them, or, or you know other fellow serious hunters, and and, and we'll we'll just chat hunting we'll talk about various topics, various things, but uh, and I also have long-term goals of getting on some wildlife biologists, uh, building connections like that. I have a lot of wildlife uh, or deer habitat consultants that, you know, I have grown relationships with and friendships with that I'd like to have them on the episode uh, or on an episode to discuss just anything and everything that has to do with the white-tailed deer. And uh, as always, we're going to we're going to just focus on delivering dialogue, discussion, education, and uh, hopefully learn something along the way about white-tailed deer. So this episode, as you can see, is titled Realistic Expectations. And really, that's what the brunt of this episode is going to talk about. You know, what, in my opinion, should drive your expectations for your season, how I measure my expectations for my seasons this actually was garnered from a question that i received in an email form from uh from a gentleman named matt and matt calls missouri home so matt shout out to you and uh thank you for your question but you really wanted to know how to go about you know you're still kind of young in this hunting game and you've got a property that you and it sounds like some family picked up and you were just curious how i go about um setting Goals or expectations for the season and and how I measure success, I guess, in kind of a way. So it's kind of a three-part question. We're going to unfold that towards the end of the episode or the middle and the end of the episode is going to be geared towards that. Right now at the beginning, I want to take two other listener questions and just kind of unpack them a little bit. And the first one is from a gentleman named Mike. And uh, Mike asked, you've had numerous issues with trespassers over the years, Ty, and it seems at a multitude of different places. Sadly, that's true. Why do you think that is? Also, what are some things you've done to encourage better relationships with neighbors that maybe you haven't shared with us before? So I'm, I'm assuming, by the way, Mike kind of worded that and some of the other stuff that he put in uh, that, that question that he uh, he's listened for a while. So first of all, Thanks for tagging along, bud, and uh, hopefully I can give you an answer and unpack this a little bit. So I do have some beliefs as to why we seem to deal with trespassers more than a lot of you out there. And I think the first part of it is just simply we hunt very pressured places. We hunt small parcel places with a lot of people. Um... The smaller the property sizes, the more people you're going to deal with. And the more people you're going to deal with, the more chance of hunters you're going to deal with, or just recreational land users, period. Some of the worst trespassers that we deal with are not actually hunters, it's just people just violating property rights. Uh, Because they want to walk their dog, or they want to explore, or they want to hike, or they want to mushroom hunt, things of that nature. Um, Hunters are an issue, and yes, we've had issues. Um, We've had everything from trespassing to poaching to uh, attempted poaching. Um, But... I do feel that the, the first main part of that question, uh, or the first part, the first answer to that question is the simple fact that we hunt pretty pressured areas. There are a lot of hunters around us. You know, I, I once described uh, the homestead property where I grew up is, is about nine acres. And you can literally hunt there opening day of firearm season. And it's gotten a little less because I think everybody started realizing when everybody started hunting, Sightings went down, deer population went down. It was just really tough to, uh, it's not as easy to hunt out there as it once was. And, and there's a multitude of different reasons, but that's a whole other topic. But I just feel like a lot of people got sick of constantly seeing other hunters, seeing orange, you know, and you're talking about the average acre parcel size of those locations out there. They were all 20 acres and under. A lot of them were five to eight acres. Some of them were even three. So, but you can go out there on opening day of firearm where I was going with this and let me run it through my head. I think there was one opening day of firearm season where there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There was ten hunters in a section that wasn't even, Oh, gosh, maybe a quarter of mile by a quarter of a mile. Um, Acreage-wise, I would estimate it to be... The biggest parcel I can think of that had hunters on it was like 30-some acres. Smallest was three. Um, and probably totally encompassing, those 10 hunters were on... 100 acres, maybe, if that. Um, it's crazy. So I think that's part of our issue... Uh, there's just a ton of hunters out there, ton of pressure. And to be honest with you, uh, the other part of it is the simple fact that you kill big bucks, you deal with trespassers. The war, it doesn't, you know, there are very few guys out there that can uh, guard and protect uh, what they're killing. You know, I, I, yes, I have a website. Yes, I have uh, you know the Facebook page and social media and all that. Blah blah blah. But even if I didn't you know, when, when you kill a big buck, word gets out, whether it be, you know, your wife tells somebody at work, Oh, my husband shot a huge buck. And they're like, Oh, my husband loves the hunt. Do you have a picture of it? And, you know, without even thinking they show a picture of it and then word starts spreading. So I think you deal with that as well. Um, the more successful you are, the more people want to get on. I, I literally had somebody, uh, once contact me and say like, I've done everything I can to be able to hunt beside you to get near you. And I'm like, that that's wait what like it was it's weird but uh but it but it happens um and I and I don't even kill massive bucks I don't even kill huge bucks I don't live in an area where you know Cicero that I killed last year is not a normal thing I've I've maybe had a chance to hunt deer that I even felt like there was a possible chance you know like last year I said Cicero I gave myself less than like a five or ten percent chance of killing you know, it was next to zero. Last year was the first year that I felt like I had a chance to kill him. I had a pretty good chance. If I did what I knew was right and smart, I was going to kill that deer. That's not normal. I mean, I've had other, I've had, I've had trail cam pictures. We all have trail cam pictures of that, you know, that big buck, but it's always at night and he always cruises through and you get two pictures, but then you show your friends and you're like, oh yeah, oh, I'm going to shoot this guy. Like, okay. Yeah. Right. You know, we, we lie to ourselves a lot to encourage us. It, It helps us get up in the morning when it's the butt crack of dawn and we got to get up the tree and we want to get there a half hour before light we want to be sitting in that tree so we want to get to the tree well before that and uh be waiting and you know it helps us do that so whatever but high pressure and success those are those are two of the biggest reasons and i you know my personal property lives in a fairly congested area there's a lot of residential housing around it so just the more people the more chance that you have people that are are trespassers criminals Um, and yes if you trespass especially with intent i'm going to call you a criminal you're a criminal trespasser you know there are honest mistakes or your dog got out and you're trying to recover the dog there 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 is intent if you purposely choose to be naive or you purposely choose to ignore the signs or you purposely trespass onto somebody else's property you're not going to get any compassion from me at all period end of discussion but uh, second part of the question was, uh, what are some things that you've done to encourage better relationships with neighbors that maybe you haven't shared? And I love this question. Uh, one of the first things I try to do is form that good relationship. Uh, there, and that could be as simple as writing a letter explaining, hey, um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, just use a, a generic name. You know, I'm not hunting your property, but I wanted to let you know you may see me on you know mr mr Yo- mr and mrs yoder's place next door to you um i'm the young man who's garnered permission from them to hunt. i just wanted to let you know i'm gonna be over there i'm not gonna trespass on your property i'm not gonna step foot on your property um, i would like to be able to call you though in case In case, unfortunately, a bad set of circumstances lead to a deer that's been shot and I'm tracking, I don't want it to go to waste, I don't want the deer to die in vain and not be recovered and be salvaged and be ate, Um, so I would like the ability to at least, you know, give you a call, garner permission, I will not step foot on your property without your permission. And if, if you want to tag along, if you'd like, if you don't trust me to do it by myself, I will gladly, you know, wait until you arrive, you know, yada, yada, yada. And maybe that's a discussion I have later, but I do like to write and introduce myself sometimes in neighbors. Um, I actually have permission to track down deer. And I didn't think I'm looking at a buck right now on my deer totem. Um, he's the middle buck and his name's Trident. And, I have a neighbor who is anti-hunter, uh, a neighbor to the homestead property, I should say, that is anti-hunter, doesn't let anybody hunt, but yet he he respects us because of the way I went about approaching him. And um, I once shot a doe that I didn't feel like I hit her uh, that great. Um, I actually doubted whether it was a fatal hit or not. And I explained this all to him but I said you know I'm not going to be able to sleep knowing that I did not search for this deer um it's on your property um you know we hunt it, it's it's a small sliver of land back there uh I regret to inform you it ran onto your property and we've only found a couple of droplets of blood but I know exactly the path that it's when I've marked a few trees visually in my mind and I'd like to go back there and look and uh and I promised to, to look until I am 100% sure that we either find the deer or there's no chance of recovery. So uh, begrudgingly he let me, and I told him I would inform him when we enter his property and when we exit his property. So I kept my word to all those things. I explained to him that, unfortunately, we only found three more drops of blood, which is a good thing. Um, that was only – that was, I think that might have been the first deer that I've ever – drew blood on but not recovered it's it's happened since unfortunately but uh uh i explained to him you know i I just i appreciated him immensely allowing me to even get onto the property yada 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 i think i may even send him a gift card you know a small little token of my appreciation thanking him and then uh, it actually led to there was another year where trident went on to his place we gained permission and i found that buck on his property and again sent him a thank you um Cards and uh, and I believe I sent him another gift card or something like that. So whenever I've had to use his property, which I think has only been those two times, we've always I've always sent him a a card and a thank you and uh, some kind of gift to an extent. So those are some things that I've done um, at the at the new property. A lot of it's been uh, informal uh, introductions. I think it's much harder for a neighbor to trespass against somebody who has now a face to him. I think a lot of people out there just see a property that, in their opinion, is setting idle. Nobody's taking care of it, and there's no face to it. There's no name to it, but now there's a name. The second I introduce themselves, hi, my name's Ty Miller. You know, this is my property, or, or I own that property over there to your west. You know, uh, we're doing a lot of ma- land management over there. We, You know, I may, I, I may say that we do a lot of recreational activities like camping and, and shooting and things like that. You know, I like to drop the hint that, you know. There may be some shooting going on over there, so maybe you shouldn't walk over there. But uh, I, think, I think it makes a big difference once people see your face, once people shake your hand, and they put a face and a name to the land. I also give them my contact information. Um, I, I try to avoid giving them my mailing address. I don't want them to know how far I am from my land because I don't live on my land, but I don't want them to know where I live. Obviously, if they're savvy enough, they can look up tax records and things of that nature, you know, whatever. But I rarely do that. But I give them my email. I give them my cell phone number. And I even give them my pops' cell phone number and email as well. And some neighbors even get a description of our vehicles, especially if they're by a parking spot on my property. And uh, I, there's a there's a gentleman that is by my one access that he has the description of every vehicle that I may drive out there, my wife's included, and mine. And he basically... <laughs> has a rule like if he sees anybody park there and anybody get out and walk onto the property, he calls me immediately and then he's to call the cops because they're not supposed to be out there. Um You know, obviously I will tell him to call the cops, but, and I will be out there lickety split. And I always joked with him and another neighbor that, you know, if you help me capture a trespasser, if, you, if you're the catalyst to get me out there in time to catch these people, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. Like I take trespassing that serious. I despise it. I just absolutely, it makes my blood curdle because I do a lot of work at my place to make it as safe as possible for the deer. And it's not your right to violate that. I'm not going to go violate your yard. I'm not going to go walk into your backyard during a family get together that you care about. So don't go walking onto my property that I care about. So that's how I see that. But those are some things that I've done. Introduce yourself, write letters. Thank neighbors. Um, Man, good neighbors are worth 10,000 times their weight in gold. And uh, bad neighbors are a negative 10,000 times their weight in gold as well. So both extremes are very true. So the second question is more of a habitat-related question. And this one comes from Casey. So, Casey, thank you for this. How do you know if you've released enough canopy in a section that you hope to encourage betting in. This is an awesome question, and, and I'm gonna try to I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to make a few assumptions. So we're gonna assume that this is a mature, fully canopied chunk of timber section. Um, and Casey, if this doesn't answer your question, or I assumed some things that are not quite right. Submit another question, and I'll email you back. But for this, on the podcast, we're going to assume that this is a mature timber stand of trees. Picture loggable-sized trees, a mixture of loggable-sized trees all the way down to a few saplings that are fighting for sunlight. They're trying to climb up through. Um, but for the most part, we're talking closed canopy, park effect-type woods. You can read about park effect and stuff in a bunch of blogs that I've written. The park mentality, I think, if you search that. Park mentality, small like you're hunting, it'll come up. But let's assume that. And uh, so, how do you know? Well, first and foremost, it's you'll know in spring green up. If you do this work in the winter and before spring green up, you're going to know rather quickly because the explosion, especially if you've disturbed the dirt, you know, if you go in and you have a logger come in, a skitster is going to churn up the soil. You getting in and out of there is going to turn up the soil. Bringing uh, the trees down and the tops and dragging them around is going to expose dirt. And if you expose dirt and you expose it to sunlight, those dormant seeds are going to explode. That have not been able to germinate because they don't have light. So that's going to be one of the first clues. Um, If you're doing it on a sunny day and leaf outs already occurred like say you're going out there right now and you know we're not fully leafed out a lot of our oak trees are just now either budding or or starting their leaves um some of the other mature trees are still catching on as well but uh you know if you wait another month or so everything's going to be fully leafed out and uh make sure you research oak wilt before you uh the timing of your oak cutting can play a factor Make sure you just research that on your own. I've, I've cut oak trees all year long, but I think it's something that you need to be conscious of. But uh, if you do it during a full canopied time frame of the year, you really can tell pretty quickly if sunlight's hitting that floor um, just by looking around, especially if you do it on a sunny day. Obviously, do it on an overcast day. It's not going to quite work as well, but it will still some. You'll begin to see the sunlight trickling in, and depending on your time of the day, It'll help you um, notice. And and if you're doing it that time of the day, you really got to go a little more bonkers because uh, you're only seeing a snapshot of the sun window that's that's peeking through to the forest floor and you really want to open it up. That's why I've always told people, you know, <laughs> I'm an aggressive logger. I'm going to get out every single loggable tree that I, I can unless I want... Some very desirable oak trees to be in. Especially, this is a bedding question. So this is an area that I want deer to feel very secure in. They're going to have low herbaceous vegetation green up from exposing the forest floor to the sun. So they're going to have native brows and forbs. But, you know, if I have a couple, maybe twisted oak trees or white oak trees that are just not quite logging uh logging size or maybe they're really big and gnarly and they got a lot of knots and everything and the logger's like i don't really want to you know i can take it down but it's not gonna be really high value maybe leave those take the really good high and, and really the only the only trees that i'm gonna want to keep or in my area it would be white oaks um red oaks are everywhere they're higher in tannin they're 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 more bitter um call me crazy but you know if you if you want to see the difference between the two find a white acorn find a red acorn chew one spit it out wash your mouth out chew the other you'll you'll find out real quick which one then neither of them really tastes good but one of them is going to be much more bitter than the other one uh so yeah i err on the side of of logging um Every single loggable tree out, unless there's a few that are, you know, the logger says, oh, five to ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, that's going to be a high dollar tree. But right now, it's not quite there yet. Yeah, okay, leave that one. That's fine. Whatever. Um, but then once you get all that out, you'll probably have an idea at that point with the amount of sunlight being released. If it's in the winter time, it, it's a little bit tougher. But, you know, I I, I would want I, I would want the forest floor to be getting hit with four to six hours of sunlight minimum. That might sound a little extreme, but if you shoot for that, I guarantee you'll undershoot most likely. Uh, most people do. Most people their first time trying to do this are a little bit more conservative because, uh, whoa, I don't, you know, I don't want to get rid of all the trees. Well, you know, they're not doing it. Deer live from their hooves to their top of their heads. Essentially, you know, hooves to our armpits, our feet to our armpits, is a deer's groove zone where they eat, live, feed. Um, yeah, they'll get up on their hind legs and eat some stuff every now and then. I've seen them get up on their hind legs and eat eat uh, some grapevines and things of that nature. But predominantly, ninety nine percent, and no, that's not a figure verified, but ninety nine percent of their their food and consumption and living occurs. From their hooves to our armpit levels, essentially. So I, I, I'm an aggressive logger. I'm going to get it out. I'm going to want as much light getting down to the forest floor as possible. So if you have the big trees out of there, you're then going to want to cut some structure. I'm not done yet. You know, yeah, you've got all the tre- all the big trees and maybe you think, oh, man, there's a lot of light coming in. But it's still a park effect. You know, until that herbaceous vegetation really takes over, which typically is going to take at least into that second year you'd be shocked what can happen you know go to an area that's been clear cut or an area that's been worked over really hard on 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 somebody else's ground or 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 your ground or uh, a public land i have a buddy who hunts by a place that got logged last year and it is insane between the treetops and the green stuff that's growing up that's never been able to grow before it is crazy thick crazy thick i mean it is awesome now the problem is It wasn't a really aggressive logging, so I foresee three more years, three or four more years before things start dying back there. And I say that because if you don't open up enough canopy, the canopy will close on itself. Because now those trees can reach their arms out wider and soak up more rays. And those gaps that were once 40 feet wide were now encroached 10 more feet after two years on every single side of it. And now you just have this little window. It's crazy how fast trees will fill in those gaps. Um, they want to soak up as much sunlight as possible. I mean, they're, they're trying to thrive as well. So I'm going to get rid of all the money trees, and then I'm going to go in and I'm going to start hinge cutting a lot of the other trees. I'm going to form structure in the bedding area. I'm going give to them, give them side structure. Give them, you know, a lot of people when you're designing a pond, you, you drop cover into those things for the crappie and the bluegill and everything else. Well, it's you're doing the same thing with hinge cuts. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna get rid of gal wow, sixty to eighty percent of the canopy. Might sound crazy, but I, that's what I want. So that's what I'm gonna do. So, how do you know? You kind of just know. I know that's not a good answer, Casey, but. I, I, depending on the time frame, you can you can actually see the light hitting in if you're doing it in the winter and in the in the early spring like I do a lot of mine. Uh, go until you think you've went far enough, and then and then cut 10 percent more. Because <laughs> you'd be shocked at how quick it thickens up and closes up. So those are the two questions that I wanted to talk about. So we're gonna close. So, the, so the final topic is going to be a long one, but it's but it's going to be the main one, and that is the realistic expectations. Um, to me, there are three different variables that allow and assist somebody to set realistic expectations, and then there, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about unrealistic expectations and what's driving those and what is destroying the hunting community, in my opinion, and it affects expectations. It, and it's, it's influencing and affecting, especially the younger population of, of deer hunters. And we can talk about, you know, what are the factors to blame about that. But let's first cover the three main things that, in my opinion, drive realistic expectations. The first one is location. What type of expectations fit your area? Um, I got news for you. If you hunt in my area and your expectations are to kill a Boon and Crockett, is it possible? Yeah. Likely? No. A rarity? Yeah. Maybe next to impossible? Yeah, that'd be a little bit closer. So, I mean it's crazy I mean Cicero wasn't even technically a Boone and Crockett yeah he grossed Boone and Crockett but technically didn't make Boone and Crockett so even I can't say I've done that yet and he was an amazing buck but I have probably only gotten a picture maybe one or two Boone and Crockett actually I know I got a picture of one because he's dead and uh, uh neighboring hunter of the the one property that I hunt uh has him in his basement so awesome buck awesome hunter awesome guy But uh, location drives everything, or or in many ways drives a lot of stuff. So, you know, in general, Iowa is a better place than Indiana. My expectations in Iowa are going to be different than Indiana. I'm going there in 2022, and you can bet your sweet biffy my expectations are going to be a little bit higher. And I'm not just talking um, antler inches. I'm not just talking age of the deer. You know, I I I will kill a a 3.5-year-old where I'm at, especially if it's in the top 10% of the deer population out in Iowa, I'm probably going to try to only shoot a four and a half or older. And, uh, there's going to be minimum, minimum antler restrictions out there as well. Unless I want to pay a hefty fine that this poor boy cannot do. Um, I'm going to be sharing a camp with some guys that may scoff at the, the fine, but they're more, they would be more upset about the ridicule from other guys than the money where I'd be sweating because of the money. But, uh, it just is what it is. You know, was better than Indiana. Kansas is better than Pennsylvania in general. So location drives a lot. Find out what your area typically delivers. If you're new to the area, find out what the normal harvest trends are. And, you know, a lot of that can be garnered at, at local bow shops, local archery places, um, contacting the DNR, contacting a conservation officer in your area. Just, just opening up that dialogue and trying to figure it out. Uh, camera surveys will help you as, as well, too. But, you know, Getting to know the expect the expected range of of bucks is what we're talking about in, in your area is key. So you know if 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 no one sixty's ever been killed in your area, you, you probably don't want to set that as your as your minimum. So I mean, unless you really want to just have an obnoxious goal. Um, the second thing is pressure. I've I've spoken to. Uh, you know, how many hunters are around, around my place, you know, that's going to drive into my expectations as well. Well, I'm not gonna, it may, you know, instead of me waiting for that 150 inch deer, when I've got two other the same age as that buck, that's 155, but I got two others that are that same age, but they're 135 and they're one, maybe pushing 140, you know what? I might put them on my list because the pressure's crazy. And, you know, I'm not in this. I don't get paid. Most of you listening to this probably don't either. So don't let all the hunting videos and all those guys tell you what to do because they're not you. And that, that ties into the final thing, which is really the most important, and that's personal goals or how do you wish to measure success. Uh, I I know a guy in the area that that went years because he wanted to kill a 160-inch deer. And and by gosh, he did not want to kill something smaller. Well, he didn't enjoy hunting anymore. It's not worth it to me. I enjoy hunting way too much to have just, you know, ridiculous, unrealistic goals. I don't have an antler minimum. I don't even really have a hard and fast age minimum. I've always kind of lived by the motto, personally at least, that on my properties, and, and, you know, I might go hunt my place and a 120 might be on my hit list there. I might go to another place, that buck wouldn't even break the top five and he wouldn't even be thought of getting shot because each property different. Each property has different location. Each property has different pressure each property has uh, different deer densities, different expectations. Uh, the deer themselves are going to be either killable or not by their trends, not their patterns, but their trends. We'll talk about that sometime. So it, it all, it all, it's different from property to property. So I measure success. I do part of my measuring of success is yes, a big buck antlers is always great. That's like a that's like an added bonus. But age. For me, um, you know, a five-and-a-half-year-old that scores 130, in my opinion, is, is a much cooler accomplishment than a two-and-a-half-year-old that scores 140. Um, just how I think. It's how I'm wired. That's part of my personal wiring. That's part of my personal measuring of success. So that's something that you're going to have to be really honest with yourself. You know, is it more important to you to, to get a buck of a certain caliber, whether it be for for, for prideful reasons, for bragging reasons, whatever it is, um, or is it more important to enjoy the hunt, to to harvest something? Um, maybe you don't want to have a minimum. Maybe you just want to go out there and hunt, and the first buck that presents a shot, you're going to kill it. You know, I, I we, get, we get so wrapped up in... Wait for something bigger, you know, and and I'm a fan of that. But you know, especially if if that's not your groove, if you're new to hunting, if you've never harvested a buck before, or you have no desire to trophy hunt, insert air quotes around trophy hunt. However, you define a trophy, um, that's one of the reasons why I despise that term because pff, trophy is such a, a personal opinion that you could you could you could survey a hundred different hunters and they all have a hundred different opinions. You know, cow. It is what it is. You know, I've always said put four hunters at a table and and ask their opinion, you're going to get five. So (laughs) we're very opinionated people. So I think that that's going to be a big driving force. You know, uh, I I always try to have at least two bucks on every property that I'm I'm, I'm targeting. Um, Obviously, if a mature deer walks up and he trips my trigger, I'm going to trip my trigger and shoot him. So (laughs) that's just what I'm going to do. So th- those are kind of the three things that I always weigh in, and, and and I I know that may not answer the question specifically, but that's how I build my expectations, and they they could change every year, they could change each property. Um, one day I could be hunting a place that you know I'm hunting two bucks specifically, and I've already set my sights on one buck each year, or or a year. I, I there was one year it was it was RD or nothing, and there was another year it was it, it grew into Bertier or nothing. That was as recent as twenty seventeen. So that's just what we got. And uh, the the final thing that I wanted to talk about when it came to realistic expectations is what what, what shouldn't drive them, and, and that's social media. And, and this is the 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 irony may be very thick here, but um, social media is just an amazing resource. It's incredible. It it can be the largest educational resource that hunters have uh, through websites, forums, Facebook. You know, you name it. Any anything digital media related is just the the knowledge that's out there is incredible. But, and this is a really big but, but it is so damaging. To the hunting culture in my opinion as well um, social media shaming is it's just ridiculous I mean ridiculous just stop hunting is such a personal thing that it's incredible and, and I and I and I know I've gotten on this soapbox before if you've listened to some of the past podcasts or even videos but you know what? Give me two more minutes, because it's ridiculous. Uh, There's a reason why it it, it is very hard for a hunter to convey fully what it's like to experience, to feel a hunt, a harvest, a journey. You can have two hunters, one the cameraman, one the hunter, experience the hunt together from start to finish they wake up they eat breakfast together they drive to the stand to the to the to the location together they they pack everything together they get to the tree together they climb the tree together they get they literally witness it just 2 or 3 feet apart the whole thing play out the recovery they do together one filming one tracking they celebrate together, and then you sit them both down in separate different rooms and ask them to tell the story of the hunt. Get ready. Because while there's going to be a lot of overlap, each one of them heard something different. Saw a little bit something different. And, and, and that's just a little bit of an example of how hunting is so personal. So don't let all these, let these other people inspire your hunting, maybe educate you on, on, on topics and issues or approaches, but don't let them control what you choose to hunt and how you choose to measure success. For they're not you. Your hunt is not theirs. Nor is theirs yours. And I think we're gonna end on that, guys. And gals. Cause I know I got female listeners out there. I know you guys write. Unfortunately I didn't have a question this time from you, but you know, if you're a female out there, write me. I'll put you at the top of the list. Wait, is that sexist? I'm just joking we're going to stay away from the political agendas stick to whitetail, but thank you for listening guys and gals. I appreciate it. Um, if keep the questions coming, there's two other ones that I did not cover in this episode that I'll bring up next time. If you have a topic or question for me, shoot me an email at smallacrehunting@gmail.com. You can message the Facebook page as well. And, uh, Hopefully, if you like the podcast, you will take the time to at least give me a five-star rating. It does help. It does spread the word, and you'd be shocked at the visibility that podcasts gain when you start getting better ratings. And if you take the time, write a quick little blurb. Eh, you know what? We're only three episodes in this year. If you want to wait a little bit, I completely understand it, and I respect that. But I think that's all I got for you guys now. As always, I'm Ty. This is Smaller Year Hunting. God bless. And good luck out there. As
0: I already said before, thank you for listening to this episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. Hopefully, wherever you find yourself, private, public, big land, small land, new hunter or old hunter, there's something that you've learned. For ultimately, that's all I care about. If you have any topic discussion ideas for the Small Acre Hunting Podcast, be sure to email me at smallacrehunting at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe to all the videos on YouTube. Like and follow the Facebook page. Check out the website from time to time. And as always, stay tuned for the next episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. God bless and good luck out there.